0: Talking history on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the history of ancient Greece through the lives of 50 men and women, murder and intrigue with the story of the Thelma and Louise of the 17th century, re examining the life and times of Charles Stuart Parnell. The Treasures of an Armagh Library, which contains Jonathan Swift's own copy of Gulliver's Travels. And we end with a quiz book based on the life of Winston Churchill. Last week, we looked at the life and legacy of the philosopher Epicurus, and we found out how to live a happier and perhaps even a better life. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, Newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with a history of ancient Greece in 50 lives. The political leaders, writers, artists, and philosophers of ancient Greece turned a small group of city states into a pan Mediterranean civilization whose legacy can be found everywhere today. But who were these people? What do we know of their lives? And how did they interact? With one another. Well, a brilliant new book explores the lives of 50 movers and shakers of the Greek world. The book is called A History of Ancient Greece in 50 Lives. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs 10.99 sterling, so about 13 euro. The author is David Stuttard. And David, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Hello, thank you very much. It's a brilliant approach to the subject. What inspires you to tell the story of ancient Greece through those 50 lives?
1: Well, I've always been very interested in 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 people because I think that uh, you know people are you know what actually makes history come alive. And um, you know, part of my approach in the past, I've I've been very uh, keen to put on ancient Greek plays for for modern audiences because I think those also uh, speak about the the emotion, the way in which people viewed you know, their civilization and society around them and really handle the issues, exactly the same issues, in fact, that we're having to handle today. So by looking at uh, the individuals, if you like, I know it's not necessarily um, the way in which most histories are actually written today. Most histories today like to look at the, the great sort of movements of, 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 of people as a whole, um, but I think if the last couple of years really has actually shown us anything, it is both here in the UK and in uh, America as well that individuals can make a huge difference—not necessarily a, 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 a beneficial difference—but they can they can have a huge impact on the way events are are shaped, and this was really one of the things that I was hoping to um, approach in this history. I wasn't wanting to write a dry, you know, this happened in X year, this happened in you know, Y year or whatever. I was really wanting to, to try to bring ancient Greece alive.
0: And do you think there's things that we can uh, take with us into the 21st century from looking at ancient Greece? The, are there things that we can learn about our own world and values?
1: Well, I think there are, and I think this is really one of the uh, things which is particularly important to be looking at today. Today we're in a society where, you know, there's a great tendency to think that anything which hasn't actually fit in with our own orality should almost be sort of hushed up and ignored. Um, The Greeks, um, of course, don't hit in with our morality at all, they owned slaves they, you know, the, the, the position of women was far from ideal if you look at it from a, a modern perspective and yet these were people who within their own world, and of course they, they, they were born into a, a world which really simply accepted this there was no one there to question it um, and that didn't make them as individuals bad people Meant that they were having to deal with the expectations, the preconceptions that everyone of that age had. And I think what's also interesting is to see how so many of them reacted to it. Pericles, for example, a great Athenian statesman, would own to um, be very, very friendly with a, a, a woman called Aspasia, who was one of the greatest intellectuals of her age and he she he he, he may have, have been her, her her husband in fact. And he therefore isn't isn't part of the he, he he's he's almost transcending this view that that that, that women are only really second class individuals. And and he's really consorting w with very openly, which of course brought him into great his repute with his own political enemies. They used this as great ammunition. And then you've got other people such as Aristotle, who his views on slavery and, uh, you know, foreigners are absolute anathema to us today. But yet, Aristotle, you know, is one of the people who contributes to enlightened thought. So I think one of the things that it can really tell us about today's world and values, is that we shouldn't be too judgmental. We shouldn't believe too much that our own society is the ideal society, and that other societies don't have anything to contribute to us and to teach us. Um, it also tells us, I think, that uh, human beings, just to return to that idea that we began with, human beings haven't really changed very much. The human animal, I think, has not really changed very much in two and a half millennia. The our understanding of the world may have changed, but the way in which we react hasn't changed at all. And so, you know, we we really need to, um, by looking at the ancient world, in which you can see the way in which certain situations begin and develop and end as well. I mean, this is one of the great luxuries of looking back at the ancient world. You can see a spread of hundreds and hundreds of years. You can see the rise and fall of things, the beginnings, and the endings. And I think for us, it gives us the opportunity to, to stand back from our own age and really um, look at ourselves in the ancient world as we might have behaved then, as people did behave then, and really um, try, try to use that to, to help us understand the world in which we live today.
0: Well it's a fascinating study. The book is called A History of Ancient Greece and 50 Lives. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs about 13 euro. The author is David Stuttard, and David thank you so much for joining us. No thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed speaking to you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History. on News Talk Well welcome back to Talking History. The traumatic, undigested memory of the defeat and death of the charismatic national leader Charles Stuart Parnell had an impact on the cultural, religious, political and intellectual life of Ireland in the early 20th century and a new collection of essays explores that impact. The book is called Parnell and His Times. It's published in Hardback by Cambridge University Press. The editor is Yup Learson and Yup, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks. Glad to be here. The description there of Parnell as this charismatic national Leader that created problems, didn't it? In terms of how people viewed leadership
2: and statesmanship afterwards. Absolutely. Um, so the thing to realise is that um, we talk about it at the drop of a hat. Now we call anybody charismatic. Uh, it could be a YouTube influencer or a TV personality, but um, it was not a. a you know. A, a known thing at the time this is a, a, a description of political leadership that only came into vogue after the 1920s so parnell was a bit ahead of the curve there and people had strong feelings about parnell and they didn't yet have the word to identify those feelings so a lot of hope and a, a, a lot of you know intense cherished positive fervent emotions were focused in parnell um, and when he had that ignominious downfall and his death, people were left with those emotions and that nowhere to go. And what remained, perhaps, was one of the role models for political leaders later on in the century, who would consciously build on this emotional fervor among their followers. Um, and af- after 1918, you see a lot of people coming out of the First World War, like Pilsudski in Poland and Horty in, in Hungary, who build on the notion of charisma. And in a way, that was, you know, a problematic legacy to leave to the 20th century.
0: Very interesting. And... Let's talk about, I suppose, then the, the idea of, of Parnell as being someone who was interested in the future, preoccupied with the future and not backward looking. But it seemed that after his death, those that came after him returned to that preoccupation with the past.
2: That's right. Uh, the political agenda of Parnell uh, was very much forward looking. So uh, he came out of the land war, uh, out of the land league, and he he had a ho- a home rule movement. And basically, what he wanted was to dismantle the landlord system and set up an autonomous governance for Ireland, very much in a sense of the March of Nations uh, to, to prepare Ireland for modernity. It was a very modernizing ideology. Again, when that imploded and all that was left of Parnell was this crater, this black hole of the man who had vanished and, you know... Um to begin with, what came was recriminations. Uh, you see it very strongly in, in Joyce's uh, scenes that are about Parnell, you know, Ivy Day in the committee room and, and scenes in, in the portrait where people keep on going back to what is quite literally a trauma and a trauma you could define as a catastrophe you can't get over that that keeps on haunting you. Um, and they say, what happened? What happened? Who? Who? How can we deal with this? And after that more and more, Irish politics as a whole got stuck in what we might call a traumatic paradigm uh, so that the, the the core of Irish nationalism became not to build a new state but to address a grievance. Um, and people started thinking of the dead generations who feature so prominently in Pierce's Proclamation of Independence. So, uh, you know, that, that too was, um, if you like... Uh, Um, An unfortunate repercussion of the death of Parnell was a a type of grievance politics and an idea that Ireland had had a golden age in the past and that the best thing we could do was to revive or to rise again or to, you know, bootstrap uh, ourselves out of the present and to return to tradition, to return to the roots. Uh, It was only much later in the 1930s that a certain sense of modernizing forward-looking policies would return to Ireland.
0: And why do you think the death of Parnell cast such a shadow over the, the decades that followed and over the politics and, and intellectual life? Was it because of the, the, the trauma of the traumatic way that he was deposed or was it something to do with Home Rule failing or uh, was it the religious dimension to it? Why, why did this have such an impact?
2: In, in a way, I think it might be all of the above to, to some extent. Uh, to begin with, the trauma was there very definitely. Uh, secondly, because Parnell's um, agenda had been so very strongly uh, mobilizing and forward-looking um, and uh, gave people this sense that Ireland could organize itself if only it were free from uh, from British rule, uh, the, the Parnellite agenda made the Irish public forget about their internal differences. Um, In a way, this this might have come to to haunt Irish politics sooner or later anyway, but Parnell was trying to do something that was almost impossible. There there were the the emerging uh, middle classes of a Catholic background in the Dublin suburbs. Uh, There was an industrial proletariat of of a Protestant background in, in the shipyards in Belfast. Uh, There were the the upper class Church of Ireland Protestants and the landlords uh, from which class Parnell himself came. And there was the peasantry in the West uh, who were used by the Catholic middle classes as the validation of their cultural nationalism. Now, that is a huge diversity to span. Ireland was, in fact, a very, very diverse country. And it's very difficult to bring such a different country with layers of of you know semi-colonial episodes to bring them together into a single uh, political movement um, once Parnell disappeared uh, I think the span between if you like the the nationalists reliance on Gaelic revivalism and looking to the west and a Protestant uh, uh, self-image uh, in, in 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 the north uh, was became too too big to span, so people, you know, began to see politics as a locus of diffraction. There were, you know, volunteers in Ulster. There were volunteers in Dublin, um, and there was also a sense that, uh, you know, as Yates put it, the centre cannot hold. The idea that there was no unifying factor anymore in Irish politics uh, to, to face up to the British Empire. So that uh, that was one of the shocks that added to the trauma.
0: And do you think Irish nationalism? emerged in a different way afterwards and perhaps in a way that was different from what was happening elsewhere in Europe?
2: It did and it didn't. Um, The fact that Irish nationalism started to lean very heavily on an agenda of cultural revival to stress the Celtic roots of the country, the language, the traditions, uh, the Gaelic League agenda, um, that in a way is very much in line with what was happening elsewhere in Europe, uh, we see these cultural revival movements um, anywhere from the Basque Country and Catalonia to the, to Finland and Estonia. Uh, you know, the, the Ireland is part of a pattern. Um, at the same time, um, in most European countries, this cultural sense of identity played into an established party political structure, um, and it uh, it gained its true force through leverage in party politics and now, the, that didn't happen. The split between the Redmondites, uh, so what remained of Parnell's political movement, and the cultural nationalists uh, was very deep, and that's very unlike Europe. Um, and, and, also, and that meant that uh, the, the cultural movement started to turn more and more towards a revolutionary separatist tradition, the Fenian tradition, uh, with the diaspora roots in, in the United States. And that is very un-European. So, um, Irish nationalism was uh, out of sync with national movements elsewhere in Europe, uh, but to some extent, <laughs> um, that was all. It, it it had its upsides and its downsides. It means, for instance, that the the revival of the national language did not really succeed as well in Ireland as it did in Finland or in Estonia or in in uh, Catalonia or in other places with minority language. On the other hand, in most countries in Europe, the states that were born out of these national movements uh, in the 1920s and 30s, almost all of them um, became authoritarian regimes with dictatorial strongmen. So these charismatic leaders that had emerged out of the First World War and that had taken their country towards independence, became sort of military di- or semi-military dictators, uh, like Pilsudski in Poland. So we usually think of the dictators of the 1930s as in terms of Hitler, Mussolini and Stalin. But from Salazar to Metaxas in Greece uh, to Pilsudski in Poland, there, there was a pattern of them all over Europe. And what I think is very, very interesting is that Ireland, with its slightly different trajectory you know, uh, did not go that way. And instead, when in 1932, uh, the government lost the elections to Eamon de Valera, they actually ceded power. And there was a peaceful transition of power to people who won elections. And in 1930s Europe, that was pretty unusual.
0: Very good. Well, it's a fascinating collection of essays about Parnell and his times. It's published in hardback by Cambridge University Press, the editor, Jupp Learson. And Yep, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
2: Thank you. Th- nice to be here. Thank you.
0: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Based on a true scandal that rocked the court of King James I, a new novel provides an exhilarating dive into the pitch-dark waters of the Jacobean court. The book is called A Net for Small Fishes. It's published in hardback and paperback by Bloomsbury Publishing. 18 euro in paperback. The author is Lucy Jago. And Lucy, you're very welcome to the show tonight.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a fascinating story and a really intriguing scandal. Uh, tell me, first of all, how you came across this story and how you went about researching it, because it, 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 it's based around these two remarkable women, Frances Howard and Anne Turner. And women are very often left out of the story, especially uh, in history in, in, in that period.
3: They are. Women and uh, anybody not in the upper echelons, really, of power or of money, tend not to get written about very much. Um, I came across them when I was uh, reading a a book in the London Library, and there were two lines about these women who were witches and uh, scandalous and vain, and they um, attempted a terrible crime and so on, just in these two lines. And and it just didn't ring true to me. I thought this... this, uh, It was intriguing, but I thought... I don't, I don't really believe this. I want to get to the bottom of this story. So that's how I came across them. And I did a lot of my research in the London Library because a lot of books have been written about this scandal, nonfiction ones mainly. Um, and then I went, obviously, to lots of different archives and, and houses of the period and so on to really try and bring the period to life. And there is a lot of
0: evidence, but the problem is that a lot of the evidence is gossip, it's hearsay. So you kind of had to be a detective going through all of this and deciding what bits you were going to take as reliable and what bits you were going to uh, see as, as as untrue.
3: Exactly. Really, these women um, provoked such strong reactions, both in writers at the time and more recent chroniclers of their story, that it was, a, it was a sort of double, I felt all the time I was doing a sort of double um, approach to the research. So one was just absorbing the information that I was reading, but then I was having to filter out so much of it because it was based on gossip, or, or not even gossip, some of it was just totally made up in order to make uh, the, the story that the, the historian of such wanted to to tell. So I had to do a lot of cross-checking with other Other sources. And as you mentioned earlier, because because women are so rarely part of of the historical record, I had to do a lot of tangential research. So spreading outwards to to find out a lot about London, about what um, what social things they were allowed to do and not allowed to do, about what their beliefs, uh, how broad their beliefs could have been. So so it was very, very wide research in order to create a landscape, really, in which I could then have them walking around, um, both an emotional and a psychological and a physical landscape, because I had to bring them to life in that sort of 3D way, because there's so little, actually, of any accuracy written about them.
0: And it's set almost exactly four centuries ago, but it has been compared to Thelma and Louise. And there is a, a, a Thelma and Louise vibe in that very strong female friendship between the, the two characters. And even though it is 400 years ago, uh, it's something that I think people would very much be able to relate to and understand.
3: Absolutely. I, I like that quote about the Thelma and Louise because um, so often in history, women are seen as very passive. And it's, it simply wasn't the case all the time, particularly with these two women. That's why I found them so intriguing because I wanted to write about women finding a way to uh, to, to mould their own lives. And so these two women absolutely did that and they did it through their friendship. So in that Thelma and Louise way, they sparked off each other. So Anne Turner was a fashionist. She she was fascinated with, with um, fashion and how you could... Um, Uh, make the most of yourself, but also give yourself agency and power through what you wore and how you presented yourself. And Frankie was desperate to get out of a hideous marriage. And so she could use the tools that Anne provided for her to to live a larger life and to try and seek her own happiness rather than simply doing what her parents needed her to do for, for political reasons, not for her own happiness. So I love the fact that I wasn't imposing on these women Um, real agency, because I think that is a very tempting thing to do, to sort of pluck out some women from history to show, oh, God, we didn't always spend the whole time uh, having a miserable time and being put down by the men in society, but to show that there, there were opportunities for women to take action.
0: You also take a, a big interest in the clothes and the, and the life of the people. It's a very visual book and you get a real sense of what they wore, what they ate, what, what the lives that they were living and experiencing as well as all of this murder and intrigue that was going on as well.
3: To be honest, that is what I really love about historical research. I wasn't that interested in the murder plot. I, I, um, it was a, it was a helpful tool for, um, keeping the book quite pacey. Um, but what really intrigued me was what is it like to live at that time? So I'm very history uh, interested in the history of experience, much more so than just in the history of power. Um, so yes, I spent an awful lot of time. And, and it's incredible the amount of research, you, you, the amount of information you can find about how people live their lives, what times the shops opened and what time they shot, shut in the winter and what time the man went round to make sure everyone had turned their lights off. And there's so much rich information. And to me, sometimes just a little nugget of that sort of real life stuff that's so different to today, to today really helps you feel that you've gone back in time that you're there, that you can really imagine what it would have been like. So that's what I spent a lot of my time doing and because I wrote it over eight years because um, I, I have three children, I have to stop for several months in the summer and so on and at, at times that feels very frustrating but I think it really helped me create a richness to the environment that these women are living in because every time after every summer holiday I had to go back 400 years. It's a bit like going, I don't know, to Venice once a year. You go and Discover new bits. So you you always have an outsider's eye, but you become much more familiar with the place. And so you don't point out the obvious. Once you know it well, you, you can strip out all the obvious bits of research that just hold the book up. And you can really get to those little nuggets that bring the time and the people and the mindset to life.
0: Well I think you succeed magnificently so I can't wait to see what your next project is and even if it's eight years I think it'll be well worth waiting for so uh, uh, I look for. will you stay in the 17th
3: century? No I'm not actually I'm going into the 18th century the end of the 18th century
0: Well, I cannot wait we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show a brilliant book A Net for Small Fishes it's published in hardback and paperback by Bloomsbury Publishing the author is Lucy Jago and Lucy thanks so much for joining us Thank you. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history History. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Armagh-Robinson Library in Armagh City provides a unique record of the cultural and social history of 18th century Ireland, reflecting the changing intellectual climate of Europe since 1500. It includes many treasures, including Jonathan Swift's own copy of Gulliver's Travels, with corrections in his own hand. And this year marks the 250th anniversary of the library's founding by Primate Richard Robinson. And to discuss its history, its building, and its treasures. I'm delighted to welcome Dr Edward MacParland, an acclaimed expert on Irish architecture in the 18th and 19th centuries, for many years a distinguished academic in the Department of History of Art at Trinity College Dublin, where he also served as a pro-chancellor, and Dr Robert Wan, the director of the Armagh Robinson Library. Well, you're both very welcome. And Eddie, I might begin with you. Let's go back in time 250 years to the founding of the library and to its quite incredible architecture as well
4: yes it's uh, it's called the Robinson Library of course because it was founded as you said just said, said there 250 years ago by uh, Archbishop Primus Robinson Archbishop Richard Robinson who uh, was Archbishop of Armagh uh, an interesting guy uh, he was Archbishop from 1765 to 94 so that was a long time uh, but uh, as Anthony Malcolmson has pointed out in his uh, rather uh, interesting life of Robinson. Uh, Robinson wasn't in Armagh for the last eight years of his life. He was off in England. Um, I think that uh, the library was only one of the the great I- initiatives which Robinson is responsible for in Armagh. Um, he, as soon as he was uh, appointed Archbishop, uh, he decided that instead of having the Archbishop's Palace in Drauda, uh, which it had been for centuries, he was going to have a palace in Armagh itself. Uh, And that was a a commitment to the locality, uh, which was interesting. So in the late 1760s, he uh, began his palace in Armagh, which of course uh, still exists. And uh, he was responsible, or the principal driver, of a number of very important uh, improvements in Armagh. He wasn't quite uh, the Augustus, uh, the Emperor Augustus uh, that he's often claimed to be of uh, Augustus sound. it said Rome of a city of brick and left a, a city of marble. Uh, and that's sometimes the mantle that's given to Richard Robinson. But uh, he, he is responsible for really changing the character of the city. He the force behind the building of an infirmary, of the Royal School, which still exists, of the observatory, which still exists, uh, the tower that he erected over the began to erect over the cathedral fell down, uh, or was of uh, dubious structure, and of course the university, which he left money in his will to found, never took shape. Um, but the library, uh, the library is there, and. Uh, really a very distinguished institution and distinguished building. Um, There are other parallels of Diocesan or Bishop's Libraries in Ireland, whether it's the Bolton Library in in Castle or, of course, most famously, uh, Marsh's Library in Dublin. Um, But uh, it was uh, founded, opened, I think, in 1771 and um, is still on the go uh, very energetically, if little known, at least little known in parts of the country, parts of this country, uh, still on the go um, 250 years later.
0: And Robert, there are some wonderful collections, some wonderful treasures in the library, including ancient and medieval coins, commemorative medals, uh, prints, maps, atlases, manuscripts. But the one that I'm really interested in is Jonathan Swift's own copy of Gulliver's Travels. Can you tell us about that?
5: Yes, that's right, uh, Patrick. Uh, We are very lucky to have um, a whole range of collections. Most people think of libraries and books, but um, we have much beyond that. And one of the real treasures is, is Gulliver's Travels uh, by Jonathan Swift. Uh, To have a first edition from 1726 is very rare in itself, but what makes this particularly special is that it has annotations by Jonathan Swift himself. So when it had been uh, published in 1726, uh, the publisher, Benjamin Mott, um, had made some changes um, just because of the satire uh, and so on contained in it. He was fearful of legal prosecution, so he had made some of these uh, changes, which, when Swift was reading through it for the first time, wasn't too happy about. And he was making the, the corrections and so on in the margin of the volumes. It's a two-volume uh, that we have in uh, the library in preparation for a new edition of the publication.
0: And what I love about the library is, as well, is that it's very kid-friendly, and uh, children are welcome to explore the library at their own pace.
5: That's right, yes. We're very much uh, open and welcome uh, to all and that's been uh, the case um, through particularly our playful museums initiative which is something that happens across various museums in Northern Ireland where we welcome in uh, those early years under fives and their parents to engage uh, with the space and the ambient of the library is very much uh, conducive uh, to that. Um, At the other end of the age spectrum we also have dementia friendly activities uh, as well So uh, the library, you know, is welcoming still our researchers, uh, scholars and so on coming to consult the collections. But alongside that, um, you know, tourists and all ages of individuals very much.
0: Now, it is an independent library and it's 250 years since Archbishop Robinson founded it. And I know he left an endowment, but I don't know how much of that uh, remains 250 years on. So, So how does the library fund itself? How does it run? How does it operate?
5: Well, the library is an independent charity and um, it's still governed by an act of the Irish Parliament uh, that Robinson had passed uh, in 1774 uh, and uh, we, unlike other sort of libraries like say Linen Hall which is a later 18th century creation or maybe Marshes in Dublin, uh, we don't receive any government funding or anything like that. The library is still run and funded by that original endowment that was provided by the founder Archbishop Robinson um, today, that is coming, I suppose, under a little bit more of a strain uh, in terms of providing the income that's needed to sustain the activities of the library. And also, I suppose, just because of the age of it, we, we do need uh, certain, I suppose, significant renovations in the, the immediate uh, future. So, for that reason, we're currently halfway through a process to raise a new £2 million endowment. Uh, we've raised uh, just about half of that target so far at our halfway point. And we're very lucky to be supported at present by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who through um, an endowment grant are matching pound for pound, whatever at the library is able to raise. So we sort of set ourselves that target of raising one million. And they are uh, matching then, um, as we raise uh, the other uh, million pounds. And we have another two years of that project to run. So that's for the period up to the end of August 2023.
0: Well, I think it's a wonderful project to support. And I think uh, libraries are wonderful things in general uh, to throw uh, support behind and finance behind. And I think uh, especially ones that are so historic and which contain so many wonderful treasures as the Armagh Robinson Library. And I think when this pandemic eases off and travel becomes uh, more possible, I think it's one uh, that so many of our listeners uh, will enjoy visiting because I think there is so much there in terms of the architecture in terms of uh, the books the treasures the collections the the prints the maps uh, including that Jonathan Swift edition his own edition of Gulliver's Travels and lots more uh, besides there my thanks to uh, the wonderful Dr Edward MacParland and Dr Robert Wan the director of the library for joining me tonight uh, to bring us one of the less well known uh, parts of of Irish uh, history but something that I think deserves uh, much greater uh, recognition and thanks so much for Joining me. Yes, thank you. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, I'm delighted to be joined on the phone by Kieran Whitworth, who's the author of a very different kind of book that we've covered on the show before because it is a quiz book, a history themed quiz book based around the life and legacy of Winston Churchill. And in the book, you'll find 800 fascinating questions on every aspect of his heroic, colorful, and controversial life, the book is called "The Churchill Quiz book: How much do you know about britain's Wartime Leader?" it's published in Hardback by Osprey Publishing and costs 9.99 sterling, so about 12 euro. The author, as I say, Kieran Whitworth and Kieran, you're very welcome to the show.: Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating book because it has all these multiple choice questions, it has anagrams, uh, truth or fiction sections, picture quizzes and so much more. A whole range of questions. Was it a lot of fun to research it and put it together?
6: Yeah, I, I mean obviously he's a, he's a very uh, colourful figure so... Um when I started off researching the book I wasn't sure whether I'd m- managed to get to 800 questions and as, as it turned out it was it was relatively straightforward in the end <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, the main thing was to try and really capture the breadth of his life. Um, a, a lot of people obviously know him from from World War II and, and his es- exploits and his speeches um, throughout that period but I wanted to sort of really try and capture from, from, from childhood right the way through to, to, to the end of his life really because it was such a colourful period of, of history as well. So that um, no, was great fun and I I said in the introduction I like my history in sort of bite-sized chunks, and and I've always been a keen quizzer as well. And I actually read a quiz book a a couple of years ago on the Second World War, so this just felt like a sort of natural additional now to to, to that that first quiz book. So, um, yeah, I was really pleased how it it went, and and it's always good fun compiling the questions. You, You really do struggle to think, is it too hard, is it too easy, which is why we try and do different, or I try to do different sort of, uh, types of questions to really help help uh, people read through and, and and learn as they go along.
0: So, let's look at one of the questions. It it poses the question of what lessons uh Churchill took in 1912? He took dance lessons and then uh other lessons was it a motorbike racing, b deep diving, c flying. And what's the answer?
6: It's flying. Yeah, he was he was a, he was a keen um I wouldn't use the phrase futurist, but he was very keen on, obviously, uh, technology and the developing technology, which obviously was rapidly expanding in the, in the early 20th century. And he was a keen – he was a, had a keen interest in flying, um, and he, he wanted to try it, so he, he took lessons – um, he, he did get into quite a few scrapes, and there is all the questions later on in the book about um, some of the, some of the, uh, the the plane crashes and, and so forth he, he had when he was trying to learn to fly to the point where his wife basically turned around at some at some point and said no that's it you're not doing it anymore so um, he, he he carried on with the passion for it but um, he. He uh, yes, he didn't, he didn't carry on beyond the sort of the initial flying lessons in that sort of early early 20th century period.
0: And also, it looks at some of the wider interests. You know, he was a great writer as well as the great political figure. But he also had a huge love of cinema.
6: Yeah, he he, he was a, a massive cinema fan. Um, and one of the questions uh, I put in the book was he, he actually he actually wrote. I mean, he's famous for his histories and his biographies, etc. But he also wrote um, scripts for film studios. Um, certainly in the 30s before the Second World War. Um, and there's a question in the book about which which studio does he did he write for in the 1930s, and it was for Alexander Korda. Um, but he was yeah, he was a massive um, uh, massive movie fan right right from sort of the, the start of, of the movies and, and early in his life, um, and right the way through the Second World War as well. There's often anecdotes of him sort of major major points in in the Second World War. I think I think he was watching a movie the night that. Um, uh, Mussolini was captured, for instance, and, and uh, he was he was he was really enjoyed any type of film and, and ended up writing different scripts. I don't think any actually have really been made. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if uh, the more history aficionados, the Churchill aficionados, could track them down. But um, he definitely got paid by that studio in the 30s to write film film scripts for them.
0: And I wonder would he have ever have imagined that he himself would be the subject of so many movies and uh, that so many different actors would have portrayed him. And that's again. One of the questions, and people will be surprised that by the year 2020, over 60 different actors had portrayed Churchill on film and TV. What is it about Churchill that that has impacted so much on popular culture?
6: Oh, that's a very good question. I think. Um he, I mean, he was obviously a colourful character. He, uh, when I was researching the book, one thing that I thought I knew a bit about him, but um, uh, one thing that sort of shined through a lot with the anecdotes and the sort of the, the sound bites and history bits of, around him are, it was very much his sense of humour was one thing. Um, obviously, you know, the legacy of his um, his literary work, etc. Is, is there as well, but I, I think I think he's I think because he is such a I, I, in the introduction to the book I, I said he was an anti-establishment establishment figure, so he came from the establishment, but he was very much sort of quite a quite a maverick at times, which which uh, as some of the, book, the questions in the book do go through, got into scrapes with certain things in, throughout the sort of First World War and Second World War, but he was he was very much a maverick figure, and I think that draws actors and and, and uh, actors to, to want to play him, and and of course you know he, he was in the, the some of the pivotal moments throughout the 20th century so so you've, you've got the history side and then you've got the, the character himself so I, I think for an actor it's it's something that obviously and we've had some fantastic um portrayals of him throughout throughout the last sort of 30s 50 years certainly so uh, yeah I, I think i think there's i think it's his sort of maverick nature and the fact that you can almost make him your own as an actor as well i'm not an actor so i'm probably not the best person to ask that but i think when i've seen actors interviewed about that They've, they've been very sort of, yes, it's, it's trying to capture him, but also just his spirit as well, which is, it, it, which is so enduring.
0: And as the book shows, in a way, there were so many different lives there packed up into the one great life that, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different careers from journalists to the early years, the politician, the First World War. You know, there's, there's you could fill, and people have filled, many, many volumes with uh, the different twists and turns in his career.
6: That's right. And I think that was the challenge with writing the book, um, like, like, like any sort of um, famous character, such, such as Churchill, I mean, there's so many facets you could go down. So I really wanted to try and get as many sort of questions across the entire expanse of his life. Um, because, as you say, um, I, I work at the Imperial War Museums, um, who who uh, sort of co-published the book with Osprey, and you know they very much want to sort of get that story out there as well. And uh, we've got fantastic collections there as well. So we, we I had a, I had a fantastic sort of photo archive to look at as well, and get some of the pictures in the book and ask picture questions to sort of really break up the text. So it's not just wall to wall questions as well. So, so 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 you know it's it's um, yeah. I mean he, he met so many fantastic people, people I didn't know he even met as well. Um, uh, from sort of hollywood studios and he toured around america a lot before sort of between the wars as well so i, I mean yeah I mean, if you go on and on there's just so many facets there which which is why i i think he he was ripe for a quiz book and and up until the point of me writing this I, i'm not aware of any other quiz book being written about him quite a few books obviously have been written about him but not actually in a sort of quiz book
0: form and what was the thing you discovered that always catches people out what what piece of trivia or what uh, aspect of the career is the one that uh, catches most people out
6: I think, the, I think the, movie thing, uh, the movie sort of interest and, and writing for movie studios was, was one thing I, I, was, I was a little bit surprised in the research, as we talked about earlier. Um, I, I, I think his quotes as well, um, in terms of you know, his famous quotes. Um, but, but the fact, I think the, the thing I didn't realise when I was researching it was sort of um, he, 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 when he first started off as a politician, he had a certain style of delivery of his speeches, but he completely changed it. Um, I think he, he uh, based it on an American, he knew... And, and I wanted to appeal more to sort of younger audiences and and was quite sort of forward thinking in that way, which I think is a very modern trait it's more more probably of people today who would think that way and, and thought I'm not, i 'm not I need to really change how I, I deliver my speeches he had a He had speech impediments which is very well known, but the fact that he sort of to to try and also help him with that he, he completely changed how he delivered his speeches i think was quite interesting because you just know him for those sort of famous Second World War speeches but he completely changed his speaking style from, from when he was earlier as a politician which I, I found fascinating.
0: Of course in Ireland Churchill has a much more ambiguous position there's, there's certainly respect for the war leadership but Greater criticism for his involvement in Irish affairs, both during the war and and before. How do you deal with the those who are more critical of his of his legacy? And certainly in recent years, you've seen uh, much more criticism of it, uh, both in the UK and around the world.
6: Yeah. Um, I, I've got an Irish grandfather myself, so I, I definitely wanted to touch on that. You know, I don't want to shy away from from the sort of more um, not controversial, but the, m- the more difficult parts to his history. Certainly, so there's questions around his whole um, involvement in in the, in the sort of the, 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 the Irish stake being created, and, and uh, there's photo pictures around that as well, and obviously some of his actions and, and his leadership that, that obviously impacted on Ireland. I, I think you have to put them in there because otherwise you're just sort of airbrushing history, which I don't think he probably would have wanted either, really. So, um, but, yeah, I think, um, as, as I said in, in the introduction again, he, you know, to his, it's, it's the people that really really are fascinated by him, there's, there's so many interesting parts to it, but, but obviously he's also quite controversial and still is today, as we know. So I think, I think you can't um, shy away from the more difficult questions um, and hope that if, by asking that question and, and giving the answer that people will learn more about his position in history.
0: No, that's absolutely right. And uh, the great thing about the book is that you can now host your own Churchill quiz with all of the questions based around Winston Churchill.
6: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Certainly in in the the pandemic age, the quizzes have, have, have sort of a renaissance a little bit, I suppose. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I, I've, I've loved quiz. I actually met my wife at a pub quiz. So I've, we've, I've, always, I've always enjoyed them myself. But certainly, you know, when we can't be together in the same room, they're, they're certainly trans, translatable across, across the internet and, and people can play them sort of remotely around the world even. So yeah, I, I hope people will do that. I'm about to send a copy to my uh, nephew in New Zealand soon as well. So uh, he's got a little mention in the start of the book as well. So uh, I said I'd send him
0: one as well. Very good. Well, I think it's a book that people can have a lot of fun with as well as learn an awful lot from. It's called the Churchill Quiz Book. How much do you know about Britain's wartime leader? Published in hardback by Osprey Publishing, published, of course, in association with the Imperial War Museums. It costs nine ninety nine sterling, so about twelve euro. The author, Kieran Whitworth. and uh, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us.
6: It's been great. Nice to talk to
0: you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together: Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound We have some great shows coming up in the weeks and months ahead, including a one I'm really looking forward to on Samuel Taylor Coleridge and some great new books as well. So join us next week on News Talk, and indeed in the weeks and months ahead, we've been talking history. Good night.
2: Talking History,
0: history. history. on News Talk.